You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Genital human papillomavirus, or HPV, is the most common sexually transmitted disease in the United States, with almost 6.2 million new cases of HPV infection diagnosed annually. Gardasil, the HPV vaccine available in the United States since June of 2006, and 18 million doses have been given yearly. Today we're joined by Dr. Shamila Makija, who is the Director and Associate Professor of Gynecological Oncology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, to discuss some of the effectiveness, safety, and expanded patient scenarios that are challenging us now as we face HPV vaccination. Welcome, Dr. Makija. Thank you so much. I know you've talked before with us so expertly about some of the HPV information, but just to briefly review, why do you think the population of HPV prevalence is so high in the 20 to 24-year-old woman? Well, we see that that's probably the peak of their sexual debut, and so we see that they have a higher incidence of HPV. But having said that, we are finding that the earlier you can vaccinate a young woman, meaning before they even get exposed to HPV, the more effective this vaccine can be. You know, I think that it's always interesting as a person who's in general OBGYN practice, when we think about encouraging folks to have their 9 to 13-year-old vaccinated, I mean, how do you tell a parent, please let's give your child a vaccine for an STD? Absolutely. I mean, it's a very difficult situation to even bring up to discuss with a family member. And, you know, one of the first instincts that a parent will have is that, oh, my child doesn't do this, which is true. You know, we'd like to believe that a nine-year-old is not doing this. However, what we try to do is to approach it that it's, in effect, going to protect her from, in the event she does get exposed to it later on, even if she's with one person she marries young, doesn't mean that she's going to be, you know, very sexually active before she gets married, but even if it's that one person she marries, And if he has been exposed to it, then he's exposing her. So in essence, we're trying to protect her from any type of exposure later on. But having said that, we still continue to have the routine pap smear screening test. Do you think some of the challenge in this vaccination discussion with the young women is the fact that we don't know how long it really lasts? Well, so it's interesting because some of the new indications from the FDA recently is that it appears to at least have an anamnestic response. So it goes along with the immune memory, and we see that if a patient has had the vaccine, there are current studies ongoing that are at the seven-year mark, and we'll probably have more of that data in three years. But it does appear that if a patient has received the vaccine and then gets challenged or exposed to it, they are able to mount a large immune response or what we call an immune memory. So that actually has been proven in a phase two study. So that's more reassuring. And that was at the four-year mark. So we will have more data as it goes along. And, and with any type of vaccine, I mean, that's always a concern. Do you need a booster and things like that? But I think that that's already being examined by the company. And it is something that will need to be brought out into light. If it's not effective for that long, then we need to talk about a booster. But right now, it appears to be effective at the four-year mark. I'd also like to talk a little bit about the challenging of giving patients this medication in general. I find I have a lot of our college-age women who we see who'll get the first or second dose when they're here, go to school, and are supposed to get the third dose there and aren't able to. Do you have any thoughts about the effectiveness of the vaccine if it's not given in the protocol which currently exists? Sure. So, you know, the beauty of this 
study that, you know, was done was that it was an international study, so you had a large number of patients, and you had real-life scenarios where patients would even get one dose and not come back because of whatever reason they move or they forget or they just didn't like getting the vaccination. And when they did come back, there was a small subset that we found that it was still about 80% effective. Now, it's not something we want to advocate that, okay, you can just get one and it'll be fine, but we did see in a small subset, of course, it wasn't powered for that, but that it appeared to be about roughly 80% effective after one dose. But it is important that even if they come back late and it's past the scheduled interval, you can still continue and pick up from where you left off. You were talking about pap smear screening as well. And, you know, certainly this vaccine does not obviate the need for uh, pap smear screening. But what happens if in the midst of the protocol you find someone has an abnormal pap smear while you're in the process of giving them the vaccine or even before they've given it? Well, that's an excellent question. And that's you know, again, we're coming back to real-life scenarios. You know, in an ideal world, we give them three vaccines. They have had a normal pap smear during that time, and they won't develop an abnormal pap smear. But what happens is, and you know, we've had these situations many times. You have a 20-year-old that you've been seeing in your office since she was a young girl, and she gets the first dose of the vaccine, and even though her pap smear is normal. And then she comes in with some other problem, bleeding, you know, whatever issue she has, and then you find she has an abnormal pap smear. Even if she had an abnormal pap smear to begin with, you still need to work that up, but she can still get the vaccine. And what we try to emphasize is that, you know, this vaccine is protective against four strains of the HPV virus, two of which are associated with about 70% of cervical cancers, two with the genital warts, but that, in essence, she's very unlikely to have been exposed to all four. So even if she has an abnormal pap smear, more likely that's due to one of the strains, if any of the strains. So she is still going to benefit from receiving the vaccine because she's still, in essence, going to be protected from the other three types if she has one of them already. Do you think there's any role for HPV testing or typing before the vaccination is given? And that's another great question. That's what we get asked so many times, I think that that technology is still under development and it is actually getting quite more sophisticated. I tend to not do that because I think it adds a lot of cost without a lot of information, primarily based on what I just said, that, you know, more than likely she's only going to have been exposed to one type of the strain. So typing her for all these other ones will not really be of any benefit, especially when we don't know if some of them even cause any issues. So I tend to not do that. Now, it's interesting, when I was in Korea at a meeting there, most of the physicians there do type. So, you know, it's a regional issue. It's what you're comfortable with. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I certainly don't think you need that before you administer the vaccine. You know, in developing countries where there's so few pathologists and cervical cancer is still the primary cause of uh, female death, I think a lot of them are turning to HPV typing because it's easier for them to process. Absolutely, or at least get some type of support to help offset the cost. But then again, I feel very strongly, you know, we work in India quite a bit, and I feel like that money is best used by giving the vaccine instead of trying to do all those other typing, you know, at least use it to prevent her to getting the HPV subtypes and developing a cervical lesion or cancer. Just because we're talking about it, which patients do you HPV type in your patient population? I don't type any, but the physicians that refer to me do type actually at a young age or, interestingly enough, 
in the older or what we call a mid-adult or the adult women group, so those that are over the age of 40, they tend to do that. And that's something that I was going to bring up even when you brought up before about the high rate of HPV in the 20 to 24-year-old. We also see that in the adult women group, those that are over 40. And there's a lot of question about, well, if those women are already exposed, why do you need to vaccinate those women? Well, it's not FDA-approved for that older group of women, but we are finding that that population of women are either getting divorced or you know, remarrying, so they're more susceptible to acquiring the HPV infection. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting issues that are developing, and really it came about because we had quite a few patients who were bringing their daughters and saying, can I have that too? So that has been studied in the uh, older group of women, and it's still under review right now by the FDA. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and we're speaking with Dr. Shamila Makija about the clinical challenges of HPV vaccination that are facing physicians today. Dr. Makija, I'm wondering now if you are giving someone the vaccine, we were talking about scenarios where if they had an abnormal pap smear and that would be okay. What if someone gets pregnant in the midst of the vaccination plan or timing? Sure. So it's not approved for vaccinating during pregnancy. However, as it was a international study, we found that the population in Brazil were actually getting pregnant constantly during the vaccination series. So obviously, if you have a patient that comes in, you have to do a pregnancy test beforehand. And if it's negative, they can get the vaccine. Now, let's say you've given one dose and they come in for their next or their second dose and you find that they're pregnant. Well, you do have to counsel them that, you know, even before that about the effects on pregnancy, which it is actually considered to be safe, but it's not FDA approved during pregnancy. You cannot give them the additional doses of the vaccine until they have delivered. And even if they're breastfeeding, they can still receive the vaccine, but until they complete their pregnancy, you have to hold their dose. And then you pick up wherever you had left off. But that's an excellent question because we found that those women in Brazil that did get pregnant in the midst of the vaccination series did not have a higher rate of any congenital malformations in the babies that were born from those women compared to the general population. Thank you so much to Dr. Makija, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the clinical challenges of HPV vaccination. Thank you for listening. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download this segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.